Hi! Welcome to the CGOB Sports Show podcast. On this episode, Winnipegger Tyler Mislachuk is a triathlete who just won a World Cup race in Australia. Huge accomplishment. We'll check in with him. He's in New Zealand now. Also, it's opening day of the Major League Baseball season. We'll preview the 2019 season with Jamie Bettens of the MJBL. Plus, Mark Arndt of Tennis Manitoba. Is this the golden age of Canadian tennis? I think it is. So does he. That's on the podcast. Winnipegger Tyler Mislachuk waited a long time for his first World Cup triathlon race. Lined up against a stacked field of 67 athletes on one of the most prestigious triathlon races on the World Cup circuit. The determined Canadian exercises, swim, bike, and run tactics to perfection. A golden pace of 52 minutes and 14 seconds in the sprint distance format on one of the toughest courses on the planet. And Mooloolaba, Australia. Almost two weeks ago now, he's been pretty sick ever since, actually. But I was able to connect with Tyler earlier this afternoon. So, Tyler, where are you right now? Uh, currently sitting in a house in New Plymouth, New Zealand. Uh, supposed to race in three days. So it's Friday Friday morning here and supposed to race Sunday Sunday afternoon. You say supposed to. Yeah, um, currently on antibiotics. After uh, my win or a week and a half ago in Australia, I kind of, the day after I got quite sick, so I've been fighting a bit of a bug, and it's part, kind of part of sport. When you when you travel so much and you're pushing your body, sometimes your immune system is, is compromised, so it's never easy when you're getting on an airplane and sharing germs with everyone, so unfortunately I'm pretty sick. So take me back to that win a couple weeks ago to become the first Canadian in six years to climb on top of a World Cup podium. What was that moment like for you? It was pretty surreal, actually, because uh, uh, 99% of races you do, uh, you probably don't win, um, which keeps it coming back to the sport. Uh, but to win something like that was uh, was pretty surreal. It was one of those bucket list things that you put on when you start triathlon. You know, to win a World Cup would be would be crazy, and to actually do it, I, I still don't think it's fully sunk in. Uh, being sick this last 10 days, I haven't been able to probably enjoy it as much as I would normally enjoy it. It's almost like you got punished for it. Yeah, so uh, sport sport is cruel sometimes. It, it's, it's, uh, it, it rewards you, but it sometimes brings you back down to earth pretty quickly, which is what my body did. So what was different about this particular race that you were able to come out on top? Yeah, I think physically my shape in the last two years hasn't changed uh, a lot. I mean, I've gotten better, but I think biggest thing for me is is mentally believing I can I could win these races. Um, it's one thing to think you can do it, but it's another thing to do it. So, doing that is just a huge confidence boost going forward. Um, it, it just makes you believe in what you're doing day to day is is the right way, and we all like to believe it. But win, winning it and backing it up helps a lot in your in your confidence. Most people listening to this will have never run a triathlon before. So what is the mindset in terms of pacing yourself between the swim, run, and bike? Yeah, so the racing we do is draft legal. So basically uh, the race in the weekend was 750-meter swim, 20-kilometer cycle, 5-kilometer run. So on the bike portion, you're able to draft, and 
uh, compared to driving behind a, a semi on the highway. As soon as you're, as soon as you get close, uh, you don't have to have your foot on the gas as much, and it's similar to the bike. So you set yourself up in the swim, and then usually group up with people on the bike, and then um, let it rip on the run. Um, it's basically uh, it, you, you win the race in the run, but you can lose it in the swim and the bike. How I would explain it. So when you get to that final run, where are you in terms of this, the rest of the racers? Are you kind of in a big pack? Uh, in this particular race, yeah, it was a group of about 30 guys at the front, and we were all come off the bike within 15 seconds of each other. Um, so it's it, it's really tight running, and we, when you know when you know it, a big group like that, it tends to be a bit easier on the bike. So for a race like this. I knew it was going to play out to a runner's race, so I kind of saved my energy on the bike and put all my eggs in one basket for the run. And so as you're sprinting, I guess, or everything you have left in the tank towards the finish line, does it ever enter your mind that you haven't won, or does that you you, know, you want to hold that off until you cross the finish line? Um, it was actually pretty pretty scary. So the lap was th- the race was three laps on the run for 5K, and I came around on the second lap and seen my my number on the penalty board. So if you get a penalty, you have to serve the penalty during the race, which is 10 to 15 seconds, depending on the distance. And it was a mistake, so they put the wrong number up. But for with the second lap to go, I thought I had to serve a penalty from going from leading the race to thinking you have a penalty uh, with such close racing. Uh, I thought my day was over, so I came around the last lap and found out I didn't have the penalty. It was, it was a huge relief. Well, did it actually maybe motivate you to to give her more because you you thought you had a no, penalty? No, totally, totally, yeah. So I thought I had a penalty, so I actually put put my foot on the gas a bit and opened up. I think with with mile left, I had 16 seconds on the guys, and the penalty was only 10 seconds. So uh, had I had I not had that penalty, I probably wouldn't have had to dig as deep. But uh, thinking I did, I dug as deep and then kind of got to enjoy it on the last lap. So how long does it take your body to recover after a triathlon? Obviously you got sick, but like normally. Yeah, uh, it depends. A lot of a lot of it depends on the travel. So if you're, let's say, you're, I'm at home in Winnipeg, I do a triathlon, I go back to my own bed and get a good sleep. You know, it takes a day or two uh, or maybe three days if, if you've raced really hard. Uh, but sometimes it can be a week or two weeks. It just really depends. For example, I'm going to race this this Sunday, kind of a bit under the weather. Then I'll I'll fly back to North America, which is a huge trip. So that obviously takes a huge toll on your body, and it's kind of underestimated. I'll probably take over 50 flights this year, so it kind of adds up adds up by the end of the year on on fatigue levels and recovery and all all that stuff. Do you enjoy flying, or is it just a part of the trade? Um. I enjoy flying if it's for vacation, not for racing. Uh, we've got to we've got to pack our bikes at every race, so it means dismantling our bike, taking it all apart, putting it in a box. So um, that kind of takes a little bit of the fun out of it. I love traveling, but uh, maybe not the airplane, airplane or airports. I could do without those. So you're in you're in Australia, you're in New Zealand now. These are places a lot of people don't get to visit. Is this give you an opportunity to at least do some kind of exploring, or is it just totally race focused all the time? No, no, it is race focused, but uh, if you're smart about it, and as I've gotten older, I'm turning 25 this year. Maybe when I was 18 or 19, I wasn't as smart about getting to enjoy the places. But if you do it in a smart way, and uh, you get to see a lot of the world that 
you don't take for granted. For example, in the last six weeks, I've been to Singapore, uh, Thailand, Abu Dhabi, Australia, New Zealand. So a huge trip and places a lot of people don't get to see in their lifetime. So I'm very lucky. Do you have a, a favorite spot to, to race in? Uh, it is. I, I think it actually is New Zealand. Uh, I've had some really highs and really lows here. I broke my jaw here in 2014 and uh, came fourth in the race last year here. But um, from breaking my jaw in 2014, the, the community here is, is really nice and really helped me out in that tough time. I was in hospital for eight days. So ever since then, I've had a, a soft spot for New Zealand. So you were down there when uh, the the terrorist attack at the at the Christchurch mosque happened. How, do you get a sense of the reaction of that community? The the how that country is doing after that? Yeah. So I I was actually in Australia. It was two days before I flew uh, flew to New Zealand. But uh, obviously being so close and now being in New Zealand, um, you, you you see the wake and the people have really. Uh, there's a lot of memorials and. Uh, a lot of fundraising and uh, awareness here, so it, it's it's definitely hit, hit communities around New Zealand. We're obviously pretty far from where it happened in Christchurch, but uh, yeah, it doesn't go unnoticed, and it's you know it's a sad time for the country. So, how often do you get back to Canada during the season? Uh, I'll be back in Canada in June. Uh, I'm kind of doing a whirlwind trip here and uh, try to avoid the winter. Uh, Winnipeg's a bit cold for me during the winter, so I'll head to the States just to keep warm for a bit, And uh, but mostly all summer and uh, tending off-season, always at home, um, enjoying a beer or two uh, with my family. Um, so I'd probably say, you know, 60% 60, 60 of my time is in Canada and 40% is on the road. Uh, but again, 60% in Canada doesn't always mean I'm in Winnipeg. That's my home and where my bedroom is, but you just have to travel and, and I'm on the national team, so that's another factor that we train out of Victoria, BC a lot. Are you a Jets fan? Yeah, huge, huge Jets fan. Um, I, I remember last year when they, they won their game against Nashville, I was watching it the night before in my hotel room in Japan when everyone else was asleep and I probably should have been asleep but I, I had a little tear in my eye and went out the next day and raced with a, a bit of a, a bit of emotion. So are you going to be able to keep tra tabs on them again uh, this playoff run that they're about to go on? Oh, 100%. Um, my dad uh, my dad's always keeping me updated. I mean, he works closely with that so uh, we're in constant communication and I'll, uh, I'll try to stream almost all the games uh, as long as it's not Two or three a.m. Uh, then I'll have to keep the keep off the social medias and watch it the next morning. So you have the ability to record it and watch it the next day. Yeah, yeah I like to live it first per live, so I'll rewatch it without watching anything. Yeah. The life of a sports fan abroad, I guess, is a, it's a tough one for watching sports back home, but that's a true fan commitment. Yeah, true fan commitment. And it's it's not quite the same when when uh, you're, I'm training with other Canadians and I'm obviously the only Winnipeg, so when the team wins, the people tend not to get excited. I train with people from Toronto or Vancouver, so um, not always the same fan base. Well, Tyler, uh, I appreciate you taking time to talk to me tonight and uh, get some rest. Hopefully you feel better and uh, able to race in that race in New Zealand. Thank you very much for the call. I appreciate it.
be raising the World Series trophy in October? Will it be Boston again? Please, yes. Who will be the worst? How will the Jays do? Let's talk baseball with Jamie Bettens, president of the Manitoba Junior Baseball League. Jamie, how excited are you? As always, uh, it's a very special day that I will never, ever forget on an annual basis, uh, alongside my happy anniversary, of course. Now, it's March 28th. Does that feel early for opening day? Um, it, it does and it doesn't. I mean, with the snow melting and uh, for me, the fever hits, you know, late January, early February, once you start talking about pitchers and catchers reporting. Uh, and then typically, I think a, a lot of people kind of, you know, see everything happening. They see the spring training and then it gets to a point where the spring training games become a little less appealing and people get pretty excited for the uh, start of the season, which is I guess, you know, what we're seeing in all of the fever and the excitement online and in social media today regarding opening day. Mm-hmm. And in, in certain places, it's still pretty cold. I know Toronto, they got the roof closed and they will for a while. Some places like Kansas City have seen delays today. But it's it's one of the sports where you kind of run the gamut of all the seasons, right? You go from chilly spring to just hot summer and then you want to be playing again when it gets cold again. Absolutely. It it certainly sells a lot of different types of apparel. Uh, You know, the toques and jackets can come out now and they can come out again in the fall. And uh, like you said, you know, even Colorado sometimes gets a few games that get snowed out at this time of year. And, you know, for those older players, it's not the easiest time to get loosened up or even some of the Latin American players that are used to playing in that hot, hot weather all the time. Uh, There's a bit of a shock for everybody and it takes a little bit of time extra time for everybody to get going, but uh, everybody's ready to go. Toronto Blue Jays this year, you know, it's been a few years since they had their magical runs to -to back-to-back American League Championship Series in 2015 and 2016, but they are in rebuilding mode. What should their expectations, what should the expectations of fans be for the Blue Jays this year? I I think from a fan perspective, there has to be a level of patience that needs to be held. Um, However, I think the fans are entitled to seeing some level of accountability towards the rebuild project. I think it's a a kind of a hand-in-hand thing. Uh, From a fan standpoint, though, there are going to be some ups. There are going to be a few more downs. Um, But I I think they have, you know, a very workable core. Um, I think yesterday's trade of Kendry's Morales definitely sends that final signal that, okay, it's a transition into the younger guys. Um, they paid over $40 million to move into this transition and pay players to play against them now. So, you know, patience, but at the same time, you know, take a good look at the future here. When you see Guerrero, when you see Bichette, Kevin Biggio, and some of these other players out there, those guys, you know, maybe one out of the one or two of them will be able to step in and contribute. None of them will be able to contribute at a hall of fame level or anything that will instantly turn the franchise around no matter what your last name is um so a little bit of patience but uh you know some optimism for the future for sure the one name that people are looking for is vladimir guerrero jr of course had that magical walk-off moment in montreal during spring training last year people wanted maybe to see him get uh more time in the big leagues he's down in the minors right now, battling an oblique injury, if you want to believe how serious it is, if they're just trying to delay his service time. But how excited should Jays fans be about this guy? Well, some of the terms that, you know, scouts and everything, and they're talking about, you know, 
80 prospect guy, five tool player. Um, those are great, and those are sometimes inflated, you know, by certain people to, you know, just to, to draw hype to the situation. I personally like to, re- you know, hold my um, my regard until I hear, you know, former players or you know, current big leaguers that are in the big leagues that understand and know what it takes. And when you see Joe Carter, when you see Devon White, when you see Roberto Alomar come back into the media and then say, this kid is for real, or even manager Charlie Montoyo saying, you know, I'm really excited to get this guy up here and see what he can do to help this ball club. That's when you have to really start to realize, okay, we, we have something here and uh, he's going to be pretty special. It's not often that somebody that's billed as the top prospect in, in, in minor league baseball doesn't uh, turn into something pretty special. So it's, there's a long list of names that he's, you know, following in the footsteps of now that should make things pretty exciting. And the fact that he comes from, you know, bloodlines means that he's grown up in the environment and should be able to handle it easier than somebody maybe who wasn't. Looking at Bodog right now, the current favorite to win the World Series, Red Sox, Yankees, and Astros are all six to one right now, tied for the favorite. Is that how you see it? The three best teams that, by standing wise in the league last year, currently the World Series betting favorites right now. From the outset, looking in, um, not only are they solid, kind of one through nine, but the pitching staff for those three teams are pretty good as well. I I would be nervous for Boston to repeat. I'm I'm not sure the pitching staff could repeat year after year, so I I wouldn't personally put a lot into them i think the yankees are hungrier this year and they decided to load up to you know really do a few things with their lineup they have a lot of versatility in it as well um and and again the astros could be the team that out of those three at least i like the astros and the dodgers even uh, on the national league side to kind of make some noise again and and be there in the end a lot of expectations thrown the phillies way they were one of the surprises of the season last year until they really petered out down the stretch, but they added Bryce Harper, so that adds a lot of expectations. Are they the favorite in that division? You know, I, I'm I'm the kind of guy that thinks good pitching beats good hitting, and, and I still like the DeGrom and Syndergaard combo with the Mets. I don't know if they have enough pieces to produce offense beyond that. Um, so, you know, it, to me it's a bit of a toss-up right now, but I, I do think you know, the Phillies should get in via the, the wide wild card or, or the divisional championship. You know, either way, I kind of have a hard time seeing uh, the Phillies not get in. So I, I I think that's a safe bet. Milwaukee Brewers, can you see them getting back to within a game of the World Series? I think the management there has changed their thought a little bit, and they've tried to move some pieces. Mike Moustakis, you know, who's traditionally a, a corner infield guy and a very big guy, Moving over to second base tells me that they focused a little bit more on creating offense behind a, a pretty good pitching staff and a really good bullpen. If they're in it long enough into the season and they're believable to their own management, I think they're going to invest and you'll see them make a few more trades and try to bring in somebody and make another run at it. I don't see a lot of push from anybody else in that central division. and The Cubs will always kind of be somebody that hangs around the periphery and they've got the money and the payroll to do it. But if the Brewers can stay in it long enough, then I think the ownership would support that. Uh, There's no doubt the National League is more wide open than the American League. We've already mentioned the Astros, the Sox, and the Yankees in the AL. 
wild card wise, is there someone else that can come out of the American League West? We saw Oakland last year with the surprise Seattle down the stretch kind of flamed out. Or can Mike Trout and his enormous new contract get the Angels into the playoffs? You know, it'll be interesting to see how the Angels do things. I think they've, their pitching staff is lacking a little bit. Um, I'd like to see a little bit more out of the AL West, typically Texas, Oakland, Seattle. They all kind of beat up on each other. They never have the – nobody really runs away with anything, but those teams are battle-tested should they get a decent enough record to get into the wild card. On the central side, you know, I think a lot of people are forgetting about Cleveland right now. Um, Chicago White Sox have tried to make some moves. I'm not sure if they're ready that yet either, but um, the Cleveland Indians would be a team and the Minnesota Twins would be kind of my dark horse. I think more the central might produce a wild card or two uh, to go with the AL East wild cards. As, you know, Tampa and Boston and New York are going to absolutely battle it out for the AL East. So, you know, somewhere in there, Minnesota Twins, the Rays in Tampa, and, uh, you know, some, somebody out of the West may sneak in, but I don't think so this year. On the NL side, the Chicago Cubs were a disappointment last year. They lose at home in the wild card game to Colorado. Expecting a bounce back year from them? Yeah, I, I can't see how you couldn't. Um, you know, having you Darvish back and some of the other players that they're going to bring into the mix, some youth as well. Um, and they're always willing to make a trade or do something. I, I think they're kind of the New York Yankees of the Na- of the National League, so to speak. So I, I don't see them being too far from the equation. Um, some of the teams that you know stand out to me, Pittsburgh kind of had something percolating a little bit last year. They made a few additions, a few subtractions as well. But I, I don't, you know, I, I see them as maybe having a chance. Um, the San Francisco Giants always seem to kind of have something to offer. Um, Nolan Arenado in Colorado, I think they have something as well. If I was to pick a dark horse, so I, I still think the Arizona Diamondbacks, even though they lost Paul Goldschmidt, they have a very good young outfield and a very talented pitching staff that might make some noise in that NL West just uh, look, race as well. Just looking at the West, A, is the Dodgers the favorite to win the National League, and B, can the Padres be any good spending a bunch of money on Manny Machado after bringing in Eric Hosmer the summer before? I, I think they've done a lot of things to get there, um, but you still need pitching, and I and I don't see, you know, a ton of options there yet. Could they go after Dallas Keuchel? I think you know they're one of those teams that is for sure checking in on probably a week to week basis. And if they come out of the gates hot and realize that by adding a potential twenty game winner to the mix might put them over the top, wouldn't be surprised. Uh, but if they don't add something, I, I think that they're maybe a year or two away with a few more prospects involved uh, and some Canadian prospects at that to, to help them make it all the way in Quantrill and uh, and some of the other players that they have. And the Dodgers? The Dodgers are, are going to always be there. They're always going to make sure that they're a part of that mix. Um, there's just too much talent on that team to not figure out what they need to do. And again, when you get within a few games of winning a World Series, um, you don't uh, you don't change your stripes that much. You're still that good of a team. So we've talked about all the good teams. Last question before I let you go. Who's going to be the worst team in Major League Baseball this year? Whew. The easy answer to me, uh, being a bit of a Blue Jay fan and understanding the American League East, I don't see the Baltimore Orioles having a lot to say this year. Um, you know, I, I would almost say they would, you know, come in, under 50 or 60 wins. Um, they don't look like they've really dedicated a whole lot 
to any kind of rebuild just yet. So I'm, if anything, I'm, I'm thinking of those guys as kind of somebody that, you know, can really come in and help them. Um, but beyond that, uh, you know, I, I just, I can't see anybody doing any better or any worse rather than the Baltimore Orioles. All right, Jamie, I appreciate your time as always and happy, happy opening day. Thank you so much to you too. Take care. We have Mark Arndt of Tennis Manitoba, executive director, joining me on the line right now. Uh, I imagine you were watching that match, Mark? Yeah, I know. I was watching, definitely. I just finished watching. Timing's perfect. It absolutely is. So we have a 19-year-old Denis Shapovalov, 18-year-old Felix OJ Aliasim, two teenage Canadians making up the Final Four at a Masters 1000 event in Miami. How big a deal is this for Canadian tennis? It's uh, it's massive. I, I mean, uh, since we I think since you last had me on the show, uh, the Canadians have been busy, eh? Yes. <laughs> Bianca, and then winning Indian Wells, and then these uh, these results right now in Miami at the Miami Open. It's massive. I mean, after the Grand Slams, uh, the four Grand Slams that we have in tennis, um, Indian Wells is the fifth Slam, and then this one is is right after that. It's it's very close to. to what these guys have accomplished this week, it's it's uh, it's hard to believe. And when you look at the list of teenagers that have made just the quarterfinals at Miami in the past, it is pretty much a, a who's who of who's been relevant in the tennis world. You've got uh, Andy Murray, Novak Djokovic, Nadal, Roddick, Federer, Leighton Hewitt, Pete Sampras, Jim Courier, Andre Agassi, Stefan Edberg. I mean, it, it's not necessarily a sign of things to come, but I don't think anyone's doubting that these two Canadians are here to stay. They are, you know, and that, that's the beauty of this. It's not just like a one-and-done thing. I mean, uh, Tennis Canada put together a program about 15 years ago, 12, 15 years ago, and uh, we're now seeing the uh, the rewards of the hard work and the, and the proper planning, proper strategic planning, and, and the high-performance centers and all that. And it's, uh, yeah, it's been a long time coming, and uh, but we're on the right path, and I think it's here to stay. What is it about, uh, we'll start with Felix Ojeali-Assim, because I think, maybe the casual fan would know the least about him because we saw Shapo burst onto the scene a couple of summers ago at the Rogers cup, but Felix, how, what's his game and how has he been so successful here? He's, uh, you know, his game is he, he's an all court game. Uh, he's, uh, he's good from the baseline. He's good at the net, his service coming as well. And, and he's an athlete first and foremost, he is an athlete and, and, um, yeah, definitely. Uh, in all the sports, you know, people start specializing in, at a certain age, and you know, and they groomed him to be an athlete. So all around, uh, you can tell just his movement and his quickness, and also between the years, he, he's got what it takes between the years. He's, he's tough mentally, and it was shown this week and even two weeks ago in, in Indian Wells, and that's that's a great thing. But I asked actually the the director of uh, or the vice president of uh, high performance at Tennis Canada, what makes Felix and Dennis so good and and he looked at me and, and straight out said their parents I mean the parents they do coach tennis they have their own academies and things like that but what they did was uh, they basically came to Tennis Canada with their boys and said here you guys uh, you guys take uh, take care of these guys you guys do what you have to do we'll stay out of the way and, and that's the biggest thing I mean the parents stayed out of the way and like you know you hear horror stories out there with mm-hmm sports parents where they, they get in the way and, and not here. And, and that's what the uh, the thing is with the, with these two families, at least. Well, you look at someone like Richard Williams at the other end, he, how, he, you know, how present he was with the Williams sisters. And obviously Serena turned out okay. And so did Venus, but that's definitely a big part of the equation, especially if you're looking at uh, two 
players and, and Bianca as well, three players that are still teenagers. Yeah, and that's, uh, again, a testament to what Tennis Canada has been doing in the proper uh, pathway that they put together. And uh, it's working. And, and as I said uh, before, I just said, you know, there's countries that are calling Tennis Canada and asking, hey, what are we doing? Can we copy what you're doing? So it's nice. It's working. And, uh, you know, the beauty of it is now the more these uh, these three especially keep winning. I mean, we can't forget about Raonic and, and Bouchard, too. I mean, they're on the scene. Like, it could have been easily, if Raonic played a little bit better, it could have been easily three Canadians in the semifinals with uh you know, with Federer or with whoever else there'd be. So it's 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 kind of reminding me back in the day in the 90s when, when USA had Sampras and Agassi and Courier and, and Chang and, and, you know, such a big country producing those players, sure, but Canada, such a small country producing what we're producing, it, it's unbelievable. So You mentioned the Americans. That's John Isner who will be Felix's opponent tomorrow in the semifinal. We don't know yet who Dennis will play. It's going to be Roger Federer or Kevin Anderson, either a really tall guy like John Isner or Roger Federer, who needs no other explanation. So it's going to be a great test. Can you picture an all-Canadian final here? Honestly, I can. Like, it's just I think the matchups are great. I think Felix against Isner, I wouldn't be surprised if he beats him. I mean, I hate to say he's got nothing to lose because you do have something to lose. I mean, you have the uh, the chance to play in a final to lose, but really – he can Felix can go out tomorrow and, and swing and, and go for it and play his game and and uh, and not be nervous about things. Yeah, the the moment might get to him. <laughs> I mean, it, it might. That's the only thing I worry about. But I I honestly I can see it. And depending how how Federer does today against Anderson, if if it's him who actually does play Dennis again, he can. Uh, Dennis has proven he's beaten Nadal in the past and. Yeah, that's why you go and play the game on any uh, any day. Anything can happen. So, I, yeah, I, I could see it. I'd I'd be really happy to be talking to you on uh, on your next show after after that All Canadian Final. It'd be a great time to talk. But uh, we'll see. Yeah. Bianca absolutely rose to the occasion when she played Angelique Kerber in the finals at Indian Wells. Is this the biggest stage for Felix and Dennis so far in their careers? I think so, yeah, definitely. I mean, they've had some great Davis Cup wins and things like that. But, I mean, in the end, yeah, this is so far to date. This is their uh, their biggest stage. This is their biggest opportunity as well. And uh, uh, it's it's great. It's just nice to see how they've reacted. And, and especially just now, Shapovalov's match against TFO, he could have easily got nervous and, and, and lost because he was favored in this match. And, uh, you know, it was tough, tough to, to watch at times. I was stressed out a little bit, but... <laughs> But definitely, it's uh, the biggest stage for both of them to this point. For me, as a someone who's become more and more of a tennis fan, I've always watched the majors. But now that we have Canadians involved, I find myself watching these Masters 1000 events, these other tennis events, because we have so much representation now and so much success happening that I, on a Thursday night, I'll be at home watching, you know, Maybe not tonight because the match is over, but last night, for instance, I was up till almost midnight watching tennis. And this is, you know, an opportunity now where you're going to have so many kids have people in this country uh, more than just Raonic and, and Bouchard. But you have so many now additional players that we've been talking about to watch. Yeah, and that's what it is. And that's what, you know, people ask, you know, how how can, uh, you know, you be a successful tennis nation? And it just takes a few to to start winning the way they are on both sides, on the men's and on the females, the female role models for girls that are out there to show, yes, you know, we can do it and, and get scholarships out of playing tennis. And, 
you know, potentially play pro or whatever. I mean, it's a sport for a lifetime. And, and now with these players winning and, uh, you know, the network's picking up all of their matches all the time. And, and, you know, it's on TV more. The awareness is raised. It makes my job as marketing tennis here in this province a lot easier, easier sell. And you know what? And I'm going to say there's a lot of talk about concussions in other sports and, and injuries in tennis. You know, it's pretty much just uh, it's a pretty safe sport. Uh, the only injuries are wear and tear on your body, which are natural for any athlete. But, uh, you know, you find that there are a lot of parents that are looking for, for different sports to play for, for their kids that are lifelong sports. I mean, you play from 5 to 95 if, if you so choose and stay healthy and active. So they're making my job a lot easier. Well, Mark, I appreciate your time as always, and we'll maybe cross our fingers that we do get an All-Canadian final in Miami. I hope so. Thank you so much for having me again. Check out the CJOB Sports Show weeknights from 7 to 9 p.m. with Christian O'Mell and the Sports Show Podcast. Not available on iTunes, not available on Google Podcasts, not available anywhere you get your favorite podcasts. Yes.